Chapter 19 of Don O'Hara, The Girl Who Laughed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leanne Howlett. Don O'Hara, The Girl Who Laughed by Edna Ferber. Chapter 19 A Turn of the Wheel. You who were ever alert to befriend a man, you who were ever the first to defend a man, you who had always the money to lend a man, down on his luck and hard up for a V, sure you'll be playing a harp in beatitude, and a queer sight you will be in that attitude, some day, where gratitude seems but a platitude, you'll find your latitude. From my desk I could see Peter standing in the doorway of the news editor's room. I shut my eyes for a moment, then I opened them again quickly. No, it was not a dream. He was there, a slender, graceful, hateful figure, with the inevitable cigarette in his unsteady fingers, the expensive-looking gold-tipped cigarette of the old days. Peter was Peter. Ten years had made little difference. There were queer little hollow places in his cheeks and under the jawbone and at the base of the head and a flabby, parchment-like appearance about the skin. That was all that made him different from the Peter of the old days. The thing had adjusted itself as Nora had said it would. The situation that had filled me with loathing and terror the night of Peter's return had been transformed into quite a matter-of-fact and commonplace affair under Nora's deft management. And now I was back in harness again, and Peter was churning out brilliant political stuff at spasmodic intervals. He was not capable of any sustained effort, he never would be again, that was plain. He was growing restless and dissatisfied. He spoke of New York as though it were Valhalla. He said that he hadn't seen a pretty girl since he left 42nd Street. He laughed at Milwaukee's quaint German atmosphere. He sneered at our journalistic methods and called the newspapers country sheets, and was forever talking of the world and the Herald and the Sun until the men at the press club fought shy of him. Nora had found quiet and comfortable quarters for Peter in a boarding-house near the lake, and just a square or two distant from my own boarding-house. He hated it cordially, as only the luxury-loving can hate a boarding-house, and threatened to leave daily. "'Let's go back to the big town, Don, old girl,' he would say. "'We're buried alive in this overgrown Dutch village. I came here in the first place on your account. Now it's up to you to get me out of it.' Think of what New York means, think of what I've been, and I can write as well as ever. But I always shook my head. We would not last a month in New York, Peter. New York has hurried on and left us behind. We're just two pieces of discard. We'll have to be content where we are. Content? In this silly hole, you must be mad. Then, with one of his unaccountable changes of tone and topic, Don, let me have some money. I'm strapped. If I had the time, I'd get out some magazine stuff. Anything to get a little extra coin. Tell me, how does that little sport you call Blackie happen to have so much ready cash? I've never yet struck him for a loan that he hasn't obliged me. I think he's sweet on you, perhaps, and thinks he's doing you a sort of second-hand favor. At times such as these, all the old spirit that I had thought dead within me would rise up in revolt against this creature who was taking from me my pride, my sense of honor, my friends. I never saw von Gerhard now. Peter had refused outright to go to him for treatment, saying that he wasn't going to be poisoned by any cursed doctor, particularly not by one who had wanted to run away with his wife before his very eyes. 
Sometimes I wondered how long this could go on. I thought of the old days with the Nurlangers, of Alma Flugel's rose-encircled cottage, of Benny, of the Canops, of the good-natured, uncouth aborigines and their many kindnesses. I saw these dear people rarely now. Frau Nurlanger's resignation to her unhappiness only made me rebel more keenly against my own. If only Peter could become well and strong again, I told myself bitterly. If it were not for those blue shadows under his eyes, and the shrunken muscles and the withered skin, I could leave him to live his life as he saw fit. But he was as dependent as a child, and as capricious. What was the end to be, I asked myself. Where was it all leading me? And then, in a fearful and wonderful manner, my question was answered. There came to my desk one day an envelope bearing the letterhead of the publishing house to which I had sent my story. I balanced it for a moment in my fingers, woman-fashion, wondering, hoping, surmising. Of course they can't want it, I told myself, in preparation for any disappointment that was in store for me. They're sending it back. This is the letter that will tell me so. And then I opened it. The words jumped out at me from the typewritten page. I crushed the paper in my hands and rushed into Blackie's little office as I had been used to doing in the old days. He was at his desk, pipe in mouth. I shook his shoulder and flourished the letter wildly and did a crazy little dance about his chair. They want it. They like it. Not only that, they want another as soon as I can get it out. Think of it. Blackie removed his pipe from between his teeth and wiped his lips with the back of his hand. I'm thinking, he said, anything to oblige you. When you're through shoving that paper into my face, would you mind explaining who wants what? Oh, you're so stupid, so slow. Can't you see that I've written a real live book and had it accepted and that I'm going to write another if I have to run away from a whole regiment of husbands to do it properly? Blackie, can't you see what it means? Oh, Blackie, I know I'm maudlin in my joy, but forgive me. It's been so long since I've had the taste of it. Well, take a good chew while you got the chance and don't count too high on this first book business. I knew a guy who wrote a book once and he planned to take a trip to Europe on it and build a house when he got home and maybe a yacht or so if he wasn't too rushed. Say, girl, when he got through getting those royalties for that book, they dwindled down to fresh wallpaper for the dining room and a new gas stove for his wife and not enough left over to take a trolley trip to Oshkosh on. Don't count too high. I'm not counting at all, Blackie, and you can't discourage me. Don't want to, but I'd hate to see you come down with a thud. Suddenly he sat up and a grin overspread his thin face. Tell you what we'll do, girlie. We'll celebrate. Maybe it'll be the last time. Let's pretend this is six months ago and everything's serene. You get your bonnet, I'll get the machine. It's too hot to work anyway. We'll take a spin out to somewhere that's cool, and we'll order cold things to eat and cold things to drink, and you can talk about yourself till you're tired. You'll have to take it out on somebody, and it might as well be me. Five minutes later, with my hat in my hand, I turned to find Peter at my elbow. Want to talk to you, he said, frowning. Sorry, Peter, but I can't stop. Won't it do later? No. Got an assignment? I'll go with you. N not exactly, Peter. The truth is, Blackie has taken pity on me and has promised to take me out for a spin just to cool off. It has been so insufferably hot. Peter turned away. Count me in on that, he said over his shoulder. But I can't, Peter, I cried. It isn't my party in any way. Peter turned around and there was an ugly glow in his eyes and an ugly look on his face and a little red ridge that I had not noticed before seemed to burn itself across his forehead. 
"'And anyway you don't want me, eh? Well, I'm going. I'm not going to have my wife chasing all over the country with strange men. Remember, you're not the giddy grass witty you used to be. You can take me or stay at home, understand?' His voice was high-pitched and quavering. Something in his manner struck a vague terror to my heart. "'Why, Peter, if you care that much, I shall be glad to have you go. So will Blackie, I am sure. Come, we'll go down now. He'll be waiting for us.' Blackie's keen, clever mind grasped the situation as soon as he saw us together. His dark face was illumined by one of his rare smiles. "'Coming with us, Orm? Do you good. Pile into the tonneau, you two, and hang on to your hair. I'm going to smash the law.' Peter sauntered up to the steering wheel. "'Let me drive,' he said. I'm not bad at it. Nix with the artless amateur, returned Blackie. This ain't no demonstration car. I drive my own little wagon when I go riding, and I intend to until I take my last ride feet first. Peter muttered something surly and climbed into the front seat next to Blackie, leaving me to occupy the tonneau in solitary state. Peter began to ask questions, dozens of them, which Blackie answered patiently and fully. I could not hear all that they said, but I saw that Peter was urging Blackie to greater speed, and that Blackie was explaining that he must first leave the crowded streets behind. Suddenly Peter made a gesture in the direction of the wheel, and said something in a high, sharp voice. Blackie's answer was quick and decidedly in the negative. The next instant Peter Orme rose in his place and, leaning forward and upward, grasped the wheel that was in Blackie's hands. The car swerved sickeningly. I noticed dully that Blackie did not go white as novelists say men do in moments of horror. A dull red flush crept to the very base of his neck. With a twist of his frail body he tried to throw off Peter's hands. I remember leaning over the back of the seat and trying to pull Peter back as I realized that it was a madman with whom we were dealing. Nothing seemed real. It was ridiculously like the things one sees in the moving picture theaters. I felt no fear. "'Sit down, Orm,' Blackie yelled. "'You'll ditch us. Don! God!' We shot down a little hill. Two wheels were lifted from the ground. The machine was poised in the air for a second before it crashed into the ditch and turned over completely, throwing me clear, but burying Blackie and Peter under its weight of steel and wood and whirring wheels. I remember rising from the ground and sinking back again and rising once more to run forward to where the car lay in the ditch, and tugging at that great frame of steel with crazy, futile fingers. Then I ran screaming down the road toward a man who was tranquilly working in a field nearby. End of chapter 19